Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, directed, in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. Greetings, my good people. How are you? What is happening? What's going on? How's everybody doing out there? Everybody feeling good? Doing all right? Hearing some good news come over the weekend, which we'll get into in a matter of moments. There may be a light at the end of this tunnel from this whole coronavirus pandemic. And not only will I shed some light on that, everything that's happening in the world of sports, and you've come to the right place to listen to it all here on the latest edition of the J Reels podcast. I am your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this content and what it is that I have to say about what's happening in the world of sports. And for those who've been with me for now 128 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It's a Monday, April the 27th in the year of our Lord, 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What is on tap here over the course of the next 45 minutes to an hour is as follows. Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez looking to bid on the possibility of buying the New York Mets. You know I have quite a bit to say about that, but at the same time, it may be a plus. Yes, I'm sure a lot of the Mets fans and even the baseball fans that may be listening to this probably fell out of their chairs. Hopefully you didn't drive off the side of the road, but at the same time, there may be a potential silver lining in all this. That will be later on in the podcast. As far as the NBA is concerned, the last dance parts three and four last night, which I certainly can't get enough of. I'll break down the Jordan greatest of all time. We'll put that to rest. We understand that that's going to be all the focus now between now and when the end of this documentary, which will be in another three weeks, but you're hearing it resurface all the time. Jordan, LeBron, etc. Well, I'm going to put that all to rest later on as well. We'll get into the NFL draft, which finally ended. It seemed like it was forever, but that's generally how it is when you break it down over the course of three days. We can look forward to see what will take place with the NFL as far as any contingency plans, looking ahead to training camp and the regular season, which is the next step for these guys, considering no OTAs and any of those mini camps that will take place in June will be put on hold with everything that's happening in the world. And let me get right to that because in the last couple of days, especially here in the Northeast, Friday is a huge day as far as what to look forward to in the weeks to come in regards to this coronavirus pandemic, hopefully not necessarily coming to a halt, but slowing down in particular. And I read over the weekend that I believe on Saturday, the deaths and the toll that have taken place here, especially in New York City, that it's actually been at its lowest since March 31st. So maybe the curve is starting to flatten just a little bit. I get that you can't rush the judgment to think that we could run out to restaurants the second that they open or bars, movie theaters, places like that. Despite if you live in Georgia, Florida, or some other places in the country which has reopened over the weekend, whether it comes to gyms, salons, places like that, even beaches, when you're looking at Florida. We have to wait and see what the return is going to be in reference to this virus because as of right now, despite the fact of them being guinea pigs, quote-unquote, to see whether or not there's going to be any lasting effect or even immediate effect when it comes to this, it certainly remains to be seen. And we understand numbers could be skewed, and, and that goes across the board, not necessarily what's going to happen down there, but even more so... As we look toward Friday, where the state officials will get together and make a decision on whether or not after May 15th, the stay-at-home lockdown can be lifted, will certain businesses start to reopen? I'm sure they're paying close attention to what's happening in the South and other regions of the country as far as any type of cases or any new cases that may spike up because of these openings at the aforementioned places. But more importantly here, in this neck of the woods, Friday is a big day because 
our governor here and a lot of the state officials that are working with each other, whether it's New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, etc., are all joining forces to see whether or not they could go ahead and slowly but surely reopen, whether it's New York City, the outer boroughs, some of the other places that are highly congested, and maybe we will finally get an answer as to the light being at the end of the tunnel, either being that much more closer, pretty much status quo, or even, God forbid, even further. But based on the numbers of what you've seen and read over the last 24 to 48 hours, it may be a possibility that things could be looking up, but we're still going to have to wait until Friday to get an official word on whether or not these stay-at-home orders will expire come the 15th, and hopefully there'll be a date as to when everything else will start to open. Now, we understand, big picture, as much as people want to get out to restaurants, bars, museums, movie theaters, all of those type of places where a lot of the public will congregate, I'm sure there's a majority of people knowing that there's not a vaccine, knowing that there aren't any therapeuticals, pharmaceuticals, etc., that I'm sure there are going to be people that are going to be hesitant wanting to go out to these places. Now, we all know everybody's still going to continue to wear masks until further notice, and you would think that even with the city or these areas starting to reopen, the masks are going to play prominent here as far as not being able to transmit this virus to other people. But all I can say is right now, and I've been good throughout this whole thing. I haven't gotten batty. I haven't lost my mind. I've kept myself occupied, obviously, trying to produce these podcasts over the last few weeks, and I hope you enjoyed them. Even if it is me talking about my experiences winning and losing with these teams that I root for over the years, and of course having A.J. Ramos a couple of weeks ago as a guest, which I hope to get plenty more in the days and weeks to come. But at the same time, even though as fortunate as I have been as far as keeping myself positive, sane, healthy, productive, etc., there are quite a few out there that haven't been so fortunate and have been fighting the big fight that are wondering when their next paycheck is going to be, food on the table, families to feed, support, etc. So again, everybody's going to look toward Friday as to getting the ray of hope, that beacon of light, and all we got to do is just stay put, hold our collective breaths, and hope that this thing will slowly but surely uplift and we can move on to our normal or what will probably be deemed the new normal moving forward sometime in the next two to four weeks. Now, the NBA, which pretty much has been the one organization or one league that has certainly been at the forefront of all this, considering that they were the first to suspend operations due to COVID-19, and now they're looking to set the president to jumpstart this whole thing because word came out over the weekend that the NBA will start to open facilities on May the 1st in cities that aren't deeply affected by COVID-19. Obviously, here in the Northeast, even though you have a team in the Knicks that aren't going to make the postseason, but right now the Brooklyn Nets, who I believe are either 7th or 8th in the Eastern Conference, it's been a while since I've looked at the standings. But as of today, they'll be in the playoffs. You would think that once the organization and the front office will certainly have their antennas up as to everything that I mentioned before, knowing that you're going to have cities probably in the South or even some out West, possibly even California, despite the fact that they've been under lockdown pretty much the same, if not longer than we have here in the Northeast. But that certainly is a plus for the other leagues moving forward because you would think that baseball, although they haven't made a decision as of yet, and then you have the NHL who are looking to follow the footsteps of the NBA as they look to a June 1st restart of their season. I know they originally backed off from the neutral sites as it was proposed that they would probably play games in North Dakota or even New Hampshire, up in Saskatchewan as well. But now they're looking to see if they could have a four-city restart, which would include places like Carolina, Minnesota, Edmonton. You still have other arenas and areas where the stay-at-home orders may be uplifted after May 1st, whether that's in Arizona, Florida, Nevada, Texas. But what the NHL is looking to propose, they're looking to have a four-city restart to kind of break down in region, similar to what I mentioned last week with Major League Baseball playing their games 
in Florida, Arizona, maybe even in Texas? Will the NHL is looking to adopt something similar to that? Nothing is concrete as of yet. Interestingly enough, former NHL player John Scott, he even said that training camps will probably resume starting on June 1st, whether that means that they're going to play out a portion or the last week of that regular season just to get the players in gear and get them ready for a postseason. All that remains to be seen. But you're starting to see a shift with these leagues. And I would think baseball will come out and say something in the next couple of days or certainly by the end of the week. And that's why I started off the program by mentioning the May 1st deadline, especially with a lot of these places around the country. We understand in the Northeast, it's going to be until the 15th at the earliest. But we may actually see sports of some sort here in the next month or so, which is certainly promising. Now, we understand there's not going to be any fans in the building, which we'll have to get used to and which we certainly understand. But here I was within the last two weeks kicking off this Monday podcast, thinking that it was going to be bleak. It was dire. How could this possibly happen? It may even bleed into the college football and NFL seasons, which I'll touch on a little bit later in this podcast. But right now, you've got to be at least a little bit optimistic or maybe even cautiously optimistic, knowing that the possibility of sports may come back and our quote-unquote normal lives could come back. So let's just hope and pray that that is the case. We understand we have to wait a few more days. Like the old saying, if we've waited this long, we could certainly wait a few more days and keep our fingers crossed and hope and pray. So I will certainly pay attention to what lies ahead in reference to that. And again, certainly some good news that we've finally been able to put forth here as opposed to the gloom and doom of wondering not only just getting back to any type of normalcy, but wondering when sports will finally broadcast on the airwaves that we could turn on and see some competition and have some seasons beginning and seasons ending with some champions. So I'll start off with the NFL draft, which I only got to watch on Thursday. I didn't really follow close Friday and Saturday. As I said to you last week, I certainly didn't want to come forth with any expertise because college football is not a strong suit of mine. Right, do I know certain players that were drafted in rounds two through seven? Absolutely. And if you didn't get to hear my recap of round one, that was on my previous podcast, which I posted on Friday. But I'll do a little touch-up on round one here in a little bit. But when you look at this draft, I understand it's easy to break down winners and losers. And in the past, I've never been a big fan of that. And I certainly won't get fully deep into it this time around. But the only reason why I bring it up is because even though I didn't pay attention in watching the draft and seeing what took place on TV, ESPN, ABC, NFL Network, wherever you watched it. But because there isn't anything else to watch or anything to really follow, one of the takeaways that I got from this weekend, as far as the teams are concerned, and I'll start off with the winners. I thought the Bengals did well. And to me, the one team that really made out of the Baltimore Ravens, which is tough for me to admit because I cannot stand them as far as I could throw them. But when you have a second round pick that they drafted, J.K. Dobbins, the running back out of Ohio State, who certainly looks like he's going to be a really good player. And of course, got to watch him last year, especially on the big stage there during the college football playoff. But then when you have four third round picks as they had, and they pretty much shored up their defense, bringing in another inside linebacker who they originally drafted, Patrick Queen. But they also got the kid from Ohio State, Malik Harrison, who for all intents and purposes looks like he's going to be pushing Patrick Queen, although Queen is going to get every opportunity to be the starter for the Raven defense in this 2020 season, if there is going to be one. But you got to like what the Ravens have done. They certainly have shored up their defense and have put forth a couple other players to back up Mark Ingram in particular as far as the running back position is concerned. And they have a pretty deep running back roster as it is when they have guys like Gus Edwards, who's a bruising back who got some big yards there last year. And Ingram, who's been in the league for a long time, you would think will be the heir apparent when you have a guy like J.K. Dobbins. You also look at what the Giants did, bringing in... Now, of course, you could argue that, and it's be interesting from a Jet Giant perspective when they drafted the tackle out of Georgia and then the Jets 11 picks later get the behemoth from Louisville and Mackay Becton. 
That's something that will probably be be debated here for the next decade or so. But not only that, but the Giants also drafted a safety in Xavier McKinney, who comes from the program, as everybody knows, the football factory at Alabama. But the Giants did some very good things here in the draft, as well as the Cowboys with CeeDee Lamb, as I talked about a few days ago. Him falling into their laps at number 17 to compliment Amari Cooper, Ezekiel Elliott, Michael Gallup. So their offense looks like they're going to be loaded going into the season as well. And as far as the losers, the biggest one of all, everybody's going to look at and pretty much they have the bullseye moving forward is the Green Bay Packers. We all know that they drafted Jordan Love, the kid out of Utah State, with their pick, which they actually moved up a few spots to draft, knowing that they needed help as far as a wide receiver is concerned or even a tight end to try to get these final few years of Aaron Rodgers, who will be on the contract for the next three years, to get him back to a Super Bowl. And by drafting Love, although I thought it was pretty smart, and I'll explain that in a second, but what they did in the rounds after that certainly didn't make anybody in Green Bay believer to think that whatever they did to try to bolster this offense certainly left them a lot to be desired. If you're a Packer fan, and I'm sure if you're Aaron Rodgers, who did the right thing, he congratulated Love. I believe he reached out to him. Told him he's going to be part of the team. And you also got to remember that when Rodgers was drafted, Brett Favre certainly wasn't warm and fuzzy to a one whippersnapper coming out of University of Cal. So obviously he's not looking to pay it forward in that regard, at least as of right now. But I'm sure deep down in the heart and soul of number 12 on the Green Bay Packers, I'm sure he has to be stewing knowing that there were not any reinforcements coming through the draft as far as offensive talent is concerned. And that's going to be a lot of the talk here when it comes to the downside or the bad side of the draft because a few days ago when I recapped that first round and that was the story. I know Tua going in was a big story and we all know he got drafted number five overall to the Miami Dolphins. But when the Packers did not get another weapon to compliment Aaron Rodgers, whether your name is T. Higgins, whether your name is Chase Claypool, or some of the other wide receivers or running backs that were taken afterwards in the draft, even a guy like Michael Pittman Jr., who went to Indianapolis, and also Indianapolis had traded up to get Jonathan Taylor, the running back out of Wisconsin. Now, granted, they have Aaron Jones in the mix, but you want to do whatever it is that you can to get these final few years out of Aaron Rodgers, to get him back to the promised land, to lift up another trophy there in Titletown, USA, known as Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, the thing is, I wasn't truly opposed to this pick. I looked at this pick as a stepping stone for the future, considering that the Packers did this 15 years ago when they drafted Rodgers. And they had him on the shelf until he was ready to step in and perform. And we know he's going into Canton with a gold jacket and roller skates. And I understand it was a different regime. I believe Ted Thompson was the GM at that time, where now you have Bob Gutenkunst, who's doing all the decision-making there in Green Bay. But the reason why I wasn't opposed to it was, we know quarterbacks do not grow on trees. And I'm not making Jordan Love out to be Joe Montana. And we understand that there are some pluses there, but there's also a lot of minuses when it comes to his game, whether it's the competition, whether it's him not having a full complement of an offensive program, meaning that he didn't have a ton of wide receivers or running backs or people that would complement his play, similar to what Daniel Jones experienced coming out of Duke last year. But the reason why I was for that pick is as simple as this. When the Steelers drafted Mason Rudolph out of Oklahoma State, knowing that Ben Roethlisberger was in the mix, was in the fold, obviously still had a few years left. They even extended his deal a couple more years to where there was no way that Mason Rudolph or anybody that was going to take over the quarterback position in Pittsburgh. But how I looked at it was, and and as we know, Ben Roethlisberger certainly didn't stick out his hand or didn't really endorse the pick knowing that there was a possibility that his job could be quote-unquote threatened. But as we know, at the end of the day, that was not going to be the case. And it certainly doesn't look like it's going to be the case considering what had taken place toward the end of last year and how Mason Rudolph, who I believe has potential, 
Is he going to be anything close to Ben Roethlisberger? Absolutely not. But at the same time, it doesn't look like he's going to be a guy that you're just going to throw on the scrap heap and say, oh, he's not even worth trying to develop or certainly worth trying to see if he could become a part of the future or even the guy that's going to replace Ben Roethlisberger when his time comes. But to me, when you have a quarterback that's getting up there in age and knowing that he's taking a lot of hits, a lot of injuries, you have to have a plan in place to where you need to get that guy that's going to come in and replace him. Uh, That's all there is to it. So let's say, for instance, if Ben has a year in 2020 where they do make the playoffs, he's been good, but you see signs. You see the signs of decline. You see signs that he can't make the same type of throw or he cannot buy more time, which he's one of the best quarterbacks of all time in doing that, where he's been able to slip, buy time, extend plays. If you don't see that, or if you certainly see a tremendous dip in that type of production, then you know that A, his days are numbered, and B, that you got to get your replacement quick, fast, in a hurry. Because as a lifelong Steeler fan, and I have to throw this in there, and I've said it before, and I'll say it one last time, when Terry Bradshaw... In his final game, which was at Shea Stadium, the old Shea Stadium, from 1983 to pretty much 2004, when Ben Roethlisberger was chosen as the number one pick, number 11 overall by the Steelers, all those quarterbacks in between certainly weren't able to cut the mustard. And I understand that Neil O'Donnell took the team to a Super Bowl, and I get that Cordell Stewart gave you a few moments, but all the other quarterbacks in between, Todd Blackledge, Bubby Brister, Kent Graham, uh, I ain't going down the whole list. When those guys certainly aren't going to be anywhere near what Ben Roethlisberger has been able to put forth in his career, sorry, you got to find that next guy. And it may have been a little bit premature for Green Bay to do this, considering that Rodgers still has three more years on his contract. But we also get that the quarterbacks do not grow on trees. And one more time, I'm not saying that Jordan Love is the answer. I'm not saying that Jordan Love is going to be Tom Brady. But at the same time, who is going to be that guy that's going to be the heir apparent to once Aaron Rodgers finally leaves town, whether it's upon his own volition by retirement or whether the team happens to release him? Who knows? I mean, we've seen it time and time again. And I just talked about Joe Montana. Obviously, Tom Brady, he's in Tampa now. Everybody thought he would end up being a lifelong Patriot, and pretty much he has been for 20 years. But we all know his career is not going to end in Foxborough. So that's why I didn't kill the pick. Because I know as a fan, based on my own experiences, sometimes you got to try to find that guy. Now, whether Jordan Love is that guy, huh? who knows? Maybe they could have waited till next year or another year after that. But it is tough sledding when you're trying to find anything close to a franchise quarterback. And all that Green Bay, I think, was doing at this point was hoping to get some insurance early on to say, hey, this is the guy that they fell in love with. This is the guy they feel that they can develop and hope that they could find a guy that's anywhere near and God willing for them close to being anything what Aaron Rodgers has been throughout his tenure in Green Bay. That's why I didn't kill the pick. But you can understand why you can considering that they didn't really do anything from picks two through seven to bring anybody of any ilk to complement that offense and hopefully give Aaron Rodgers another shot. Now, they made it to an NFC Championship game this past year. We understand that, but the competition is going to get stiffer. We know the improvements that a lot of the other teams in the NFC have made. So, we just have to see how it all is going to shake down once we get the season up and running. As I go through some of these transactions from the other day and some of the surprises, I know last week I mentioned Jalen Hurts was going to be a guy that I felt would be a sleeper. Now, again, he's not your conventional sleeper where it's a guy that went to a small school or played at a small program and shot up the charts to the point where this is a guy that we're going to have to keep an eye on moving forward and see what type of progressions he's going to make in the league considering that he pretty much was under everybody's radar until he got to the draft day. So Jalen Hurts, who goes to Philly, and Carson Wentz extended his hand to welcome Jalen Hurts aboard. I know a lot of people probably thought, why would they draft him in the second round considering they have Wentz in the fold? But as we all know, Wentz's injury history and having Nate Sudfeld, not to knock on the kid, but he hasn't had a lot of snaps in the league. Maybe they felt as if 
by bringing in Hurts, will certainly be a little competition for the number two backup position on the team, which would certainly benefit all parties involved, even Carson Wentz to a certain degree. Now, we understand it's his job, but who knows? If Wentz gets an injury there early in the preseason and Hurts comes in and starts doing the job, not to say you're going to cut Wentz right away, but you may have another quarterback controversy in Philadelphia. We all know he's making over $100 million. That's the amount of money guaranteed. But bringing in Hurts, I thought, was a smart decision by them because we don't know what's going to happen here with Wentz. Now, granted, he did play pretty much the whole year last year. So all they did here with this pick, I believe, was cover their rear ends. Now, you had the Carolina Panthers draft nothing but defense, which was highlighted by their first-round pick, Derek Brown, the defensive tackle from Auburn. Let's see if that bodes well for a Panther team that couldn't stop anybody last year and will certainly be an upgrade to try to complement that offense under Matt Rule. I didn't bring this up last week, but they signed Christian McCaffrey to the richest contract in NFL history in regards to a running back is concerned with him being the main cog in that Panther offense. The Redskins finally traded Trent Williams to San Francisco as Joe Staley, their longtime left tackle, retires. So Williams will certainly fill in his spot. And considering he had a year off and he's 31 years of age, I'm sure he'll be reinvigorated and ready to go come training camp if there is a training camp. So that was a good move by San Francisco. And they made a bunch of moves when you think about it. Whether it's the trade to the Colts, sending DeForest Buckner for the number one pick, and then they drafted a kid, Kinlaw, to pretty much take the place of Buckner in that defensive line. They also traded Matt Breida to the Dolphins as well as the wide receiver Marquise Goodwin to Philadelphia. So they certainly were wheeling and dealing to do whatever it is they can to fortify their team after being that close to winning a Super Bowl this past year. Other notables, Jake Fromm goes to the Bills in the fifth round. The knock on Fromm was not a left arm strength, although he has the experience and the IQ and is able to throw an accurate ball. But as we all know, when you get to the NFL... It's all about being able to get those throws to the outside, zip the ball in tight windows. And Fromm is a guy who's probably more Chad Pennington than he is Drew Bledsoe. And when I say Drew Bledsoe, I'm talking about arm strength when he came out back in 1993. So I'm not trying to compare Drew Bledsoe to Jake Fromm by any stretch, but for those who go back that far, when Bledsoe first came to the league, he had a rifle arm. Then you had Laramie Tunsil. As the Texans sign him to a three-year, $66 million deal, which is the most expensive contract by annual salaries concerned for an offensive lineman. Taysom Hill resigns for two years of $21 million, 16 of it guaranteed. And there were a lot of rumblings over the weekend that the Saints may offer a contract to a one Jameis Winston, which makes you think whether or not if Taysom Hill, is he going to be the guy? Now, granted, it's only two years, but... A lot of people thought that Taysom Hill would be the guy to take over once Drew Brees finally retires. And we all know Drew Brees re up for two years and is going to go off to be an analyst at NBC once it's all said and done. But who knows if Jameis, if a contract's going to be put forth for him. Now, we know Taysom Hill is more of a hybrid type guy. He's pretty much in their third down packages. Yes, he does have a strong arm, but he's very versatile. He's not a guy that I guess you could build an offense around. Maybe if you're Sean Payton, you can. But who knows? Whether Jameis does come in remains to be seen. But that I thought was pretty fascinating, knowing that they have signed Taysom Hill to that uh, deal. And granted, it's only two years. But knowing that they were flirting with the idea of bringing in Jameis Winston. And if that happens, then I guess that's just a triple threat for the team. But we would think that if Breeze is going to be healthy for a whole year, Jameis Winston's certainly going to be carrying the clipboard for 16 games or however many games are going to be played in the NFL regular season this year. Also, Thaddeus Moss was signed by the Redskins as a tight end. He, the son of Randy Moss, the Hall of Famer who predominantly played his games in Minnesota, though he bounced around New England, Oakland, etc. So we'll get to see him perform down in the nation's capital. I touched on the Gronk trade in the previous podcast, and I'll just say it real quick. Gronkowski, fourth-round pick, from Tampa goes to New England while he goes down there. Now, he's certainly going to have to get his body right after a year off and all the shenanigans of the -the off-the-field stuff that he's been doing, WrestleMania and other appearances, New Year's Eve. I think he was doing, what, Ryan Seacrest or whatever. 
So now he can get back in football mode, and I'm sure he'll be raring to go, knowing that the Buccaneers who drafted the kid Tristan Wirfs, the left tackle who will protect Tom Brady, and obviously everything that they've done this offseason, Tampa is certainly going to be the one team a lot of people are going to have their eyes on as to how they'll progress in a regular season with the two ex-New England Patriots on their team. And New England did not draft a quarterback, which a lot of people would think to believe that Jared Stidham will be the quarterback under center to start off your 2020 season. Bill Belichick, on his own admission, said that wasn't the plan or that wasn't the intention to not draft a quarterback because Stidham is going to be entrenched in that position. But with Belichick, you never know. If the market comes back to him and Cam Newton is still there, I'm sure that Bill's going to reach out to him and his representatives to see whether whether or not he would come to New England or where his head is at, obviously for the cheapest price possible. And I wouldn't be surprised if that comes up the pike considering Miami has their quarterback, even the LA Chargers with them drafting Justin Herbert. And pretty much Cam right now is a guy that's looking for a team. And you would think at this stage of his career, he's made a ton of money won an MVP, made it to a Super Bowl, that his best chance to probably get back would be to reach out to Bill Belichick and see whether or not that they can get a feeler on him to come in at the right price. And it would be a smart move on their part. Now, I don't know if Belichick would want to have a guy like Newton on his team, considering the injuries that he's had over the last couple of years. Maybe there'll be something incentive-laden, and I'm not saying this because I have any inside information But just thinking of a right fit with a guy who certainly has a lot of experience in the league and know what it's like to lead a team to a Super Bowl. And who knows if Belichick will look at that and try to get lightning in a bottle for one year by having Cam Newton be a part of the team to see if they could bring him back to a Super Bowl with a quarterback other than Tom Brady taking charge. So now the NFL will stay quiet. And even with all the news that I mentioned earlier, you wonder what the NFL, who has been unaffected throughout all this and pretty much been bulletproof, you wonder if they're going to come out from this unscathed, knowing that if there's going to be plans in place with the other leagues, like I mentioned earlier, either restarting or starting up here. And then as we get into the summer months, going into the fall And obviously we have the possibility of this thing rearing its ugly head, maybe in the fall. And who knows what's going to happen there as far as any type of treatments. But could you imagine if the NFL, throughout this whole scenario over the last six to eight weeks, could be the one sports league out of all of them? I guess anything short of rugby and cricket. And I'm sure that those two sports have been affected. It's amazing to think that this sport certainly could look at this and they won't even have to dust off a shoulder, let alone pick themselves off the floor. Just, you can't make it up. Time will tell. We'll certainly see how all this will shake down here in the coming months. And you wonder if the NFL will come out with any contingency plan. You would think they wouldn't want to tempt fate by saying, oh no, we're going to go everything according to schedule. All right, we may hold off on OTAs. All right, yeah, mini camps, but late July... Whatever it's the 23rd, 26th, whenever those opening dates are, away we go. Hall of Fame ceremony, Steelers-Cowboys, the Hall of Fame game, all the preseason games, you name it. I bet you they're going to go just as planned. But if you're Roger Goodell and company, I just would think, not tempt the football gods to say, you're going to get struck down too, just like the NBA, NHL, soccer, MLB, etc. That they would come up with some sort of plan to say, This is what's going to happen if A, B, or C does come down the pike. I mean, it wouldn't hurt, right? But they are the NFL. They are the shield. So who knows? Maybe they won't have a plan in place and then they'll be scrambling, wondering last minute, oh, what do we do? Which would be obviously very stupid. But that's what we have there for the NFL and just something to think about as we move along. Now, before I get into... The last dance as I'll turn my attention to the NBA. Chris Paul came out last week and said that they would need the players, that is, three to four weeks to get ready to have some sort of training camp. And again, we won't know until maybe later this week or in the coming days on what the NBA's plan 
moving forward would be whether to start a season or restart their season to go into the postseason. Again, we still have to wait on that. But three to four weeks, because you don't want these guys to who have been idle for all this time, some haven't even shot of the basket, a la Giannis Antetokounmpo, and to think that they could just get back into these facilities even as early as Friday and just start ramping up their workout regimens, programs, etc., that two weeks aren't enough, maybe three, if not a month. Well, you would think that maybe the NBA had taken some action by opening some of these facilities this coming Friday, which will be May 1st, and maybe in hopes of June 1st or maybe even June 15th to get a few games in to July 1st and maybe start a postseason from July 1st and go to Labor Day. That's the prevailing thought, I would think, from the league. But again, we will certainly see what the NBA will have in store. And I'm sure the players and Adam Silver, they worked hand-in-hand and pretty much even going back to David Stern. There certainly hasn't been any animosity between the owners or, in this case, the commissioner and the players. So I'm sure he's going to do whatever it takes and whatever's right, considering the NBA has been the one league that has been at the forefront of making all these decisions. And it would be great to see if these guys could get back on the beam in some of these cities as early as Friday. Well, again, we'll just have to wait word on when this league's going to reopen and either figure out when to finish out a regular season, whether that be five games, seven games over two weeks, or just jump right into a postseason. As I've said before, I think it would be smart just to get anywhere between, I would say, at least five games. So take the last five games of the regular season, do it over the course of two weeks. So if that means June 15th to June 30th, you get those five to, let's say five games out of the way. And then July 1st, which would be NBA free agency, obviously, well, that will have to get pushed forward. But if you start your postseason on July 1st and then hope to finish before the start of the NFL season, they will consider it to be uh, an enormous success considering what has transpired here since early March. Now, to turn my attention to the ESPN documentary last night, episodes three and four of The Last Dance, and I can't get enough of it, man. I mean, this is just fascinating TV. They did the right thing by moving this up, which would originally have aired on June the 2nd, but considering the state of the country and the world for that matter, if you haven't watched any of it, people, well, you got to get up on it because this is some of the most riveting, compelling, you name it. It's just fascinating on so many fronts. We all know the cast of characters and everybody that's involved in this. And here are some of the takeaways from last night. So spoiler alert, people, if you haven't watched it, I would suggest that you want to forward this. But I tell you, you're missing out on some good stuff. This is content that, to think, 22 years later, still resonates with the sports fan, especially someone like myself who's witnessed those teams. But even if you're a guy who doesn't watch basketball or doesn't follow the Bulls or not a big Bulls fan, you still have to marvel at one of the more iconic sports figures that this country's ever produced than one Michael Jordan. And I'll get to him in a second. But as far as the takeaways are concerned, It was interesting to hear how Jordan was glowing about Doug Collins. Collins was a guy who became coach after they dismissed Stan Albeck after the 85-86 season. And Collins was a guy that was just like Jordan, competitive, fiery, and they got along pretty much from the start. And what was interesting too is that as you watched last night and you got a chance to see Jerry Krause, the GM, of the Bulls at that time when they brought in Tex Winter and Winter was an offensive mind. Of course, the architect of the triangle offense, which is people here in New York, they were just sick and tired of when Phil Jackson came here as the president of basketball operations and Carmelo and instituting that. And we all know how that became a colossal failure here for the Knicks over the last few years. But going back, once Tex Winter became a part of the triangle offense and even during that time when the Bulls and the Pistons were going at it. Obviously, everything went through Michael Jordan. But there was a guy that was on that bench as an assistant coach who came up the ranks and went to various places. I didn't realize that Phil Jackson started 
his coaching career in Puerto Rico. And then I know about his CBA exploits going up to Albany and then getting an opportunity to be an assistant on the Bulls staff. But even Doug Collins being interviewed and he knew that the writing was on the wall. Knowing that everything that Phil absorbed from Tex and what he was able to do not only in his stints in PR but also in Albany and more importantly under the tutelage of Red Holtzman, the coach of those Nick teams, the championship teams of the early 70s. It was just a matter of time before Phil Jackson were to become the coach of the Bulls. Let's face it, Doug Collins should have been the coach of that team after that 89 season. Now they took the Pistons to six games. They were up two games to one in the 89 Eastern Conference Finals. He continued to build that team as they were on the come up there in the Eastern Conference, knowing that they were getting that much closer to trying to dethrone the Pistons, who at that time were the team to beat there after the Celtics had run roughshod over the Eastern Conference there in the mid-80s. And once Phil Jackson became part of the mix, we all know pretty much the team took off from there, despite losing in 90 and the Scotty migraine game in which they lost. And that's one of the things that hadn't been brought up yet, and I guess they got to wait a little bit further in the documentary. But do you know Michael Jordan played in two Game 7s in his career? Two. Now, the one we witnessed last night where he lost in Detroit, and then later on, which was Game 7 at home in the 98 Eastern Conference Final against the Indiana Pacers. So when you think of Jordan's career and you wonder how many Game 7s he's been in, to think that he's only been in two just explains part of his greatness, which I'll get to in a matter of moments. But you had a lot of other things here that you witnessed last night, which were just, a, again, a lot of it this I knew. Some of this stuff was just as riveting as it can be. Now, when you saw the battles between the Pistons and the Bulls, especially when you got to the 91 season and what the Bulls did to them in the conference finals when they swept them, and you see Isaiah walking off the court as well as Lambeer and the rest of the team without a handshake, and just to get Jordan's reaction was worth the price of admission. Just to see him and his reaction to Isaiah, his hatred for the bad boys teams, to this day that it still irks him. And then it also makes you think on a sidebar note, the respect factor when you think of the dream team And a lot of people thought that Michael Jordan was at the helm of the freeze out of Isaiah Thomas not making the dream team. And as we all know, Isaiah should have been a part of that team. Isaiah is one of the all-time great point guards to ever play. So for him not to make it is an injustice, but we understand why. And even though Jordan and company didn't think there was a freeze out or certainly had no influence on Isaiah Thomas being on that team. But you would think that a lot of this Hatred may have stemmed from what took place there in those closing seconds at the Palace at Auburn Hills and something that still burns in Michael Jordan's soul to this day. And I loved it. I mean, how could you not? Now, I get that Isaiah came back and said that, well, when the Celtics in 88, when Bird walked off the court, and even as Kevin McHale was walking off the court where Isaiah got his attention and they had that big handshake there at center court in the old Pontiac Silverdome, He said, well, that was done to us, so we were only doing what was done to us. And even though he said years later that uh, that probably wouldn't have been the case if it wasn't done to us. You know what? Isaiah was wrong in doing that. Watching the video, we get that Bill Lane Beer was pretty much the orchestrator of all that, getting in his ear and said, ah, let's just walk past these guys. And everybody knows Lane Beer was a guy you can never root for. And Lane Beer is the prototypical guy that if he's on your team, you love him. But if he's not, you cannot stand him. And Lane Beer was a guy that, ugh, he was despised throughout the league. And what also makes it interesting is that you have Dennis Rodman, who, as we all know, was on those bull teams, especially in that final year, and the back three of the three-peats there in the 90s. But since he was a part of those bad boys Pistons teams, and of course him pushing Scotty into the basket, And him just laying there for several minutes until he got up and knowing that that was the beginning of the end of the Piston reign there in the late 80s. That vacation that he took that he had to get away for a few days in which Michael Jordan had to go fetch for him where Carmen Electra is hiding under some sheets by a sofa. 
stuff that you just would never even think of. But then again, it is Dennis Rodman, so anything's imaginable. But all the stuff that you get from this documentary, and to think there's six more to come, I can sit down and binge watch all six right now. Now, I can't get enough of this stuff. And you also got to remember, too, a couple other things, which I liked. The Indian drill, which I thought was funny, and how Jordan explained that, where Dennis came in and he had to run and they were trying to slow down because they figured that they didn't want to be the guys to feel the brunt of Rodman's quote-unquote vacation. And then it's like, wait a minute, why do we have to suffer? So they all tried to get at a slow pace. And then once Rodman kicked in, he started sprinting around the track. So then they had to have all 12 players pass him to get ahead of him in order to keep the drill going. So Jordan said, yeah, we had to do four pretty much sprints around the court there before we could even catch up to him, which I thought was pretty funny. And then the one other thing that I liked too, well, a couple others, was the Horace Grant getting elbowed by James Edwards and then crumpling to the court and how Jordan explained It's like, no, man, you got to get up. You got to show them. The minute you show any weakness, they're going to pounce on that. That's one of the things about playing against teams like that. It's almost as if they're the big bully on the block. So they're going to do whatever it takes to try to throw you off your game. And Dennis Rodman was great at doing that. Rick Mahorn was a force at doing that. Although he's more of a policeman than he was trying to be chippy and trying to be an agitator. Now, Rodman was a virtuoso at that. And James Edwards was certainly not a guy that was a nasty player or dirty player. But when you become a part of fabric of that team... You're certainly going to do whatever it takes to throw your opponent off. And we don't know Bill Lane Beer was that type of guy as well. So I thought that was pretty interesting as well. And then Krause announcing that on the trip to Utah after the Super Bowl, that Phil's not going to come back. And Jordan having to answer all the questions about him playing next year when he adamantly said that he's not going to play for any other coach unless his name is Phil Jackson. So he had to start that whole thing up again. Now, I don't know where Jerry Reinsdorf was in all this, especially in these last two episodes, because I'm sure, obviously, he was on board with this from the beginning of the year, knowing that this was the AKA The Last Dance. And you would think, as an owner, he would interfere and say, hey, Jerry, we all know that this was said during the preseason or before the season started. There's no need to bring that up here, which would certainly aggravate the players. And, of course, you're a superstar and a one Michael Jordan. So all this stuff, you definitely got to watch. And even again, even if you're not a basketball fan, if you are a basketball fan, you're missing out big time. But it's great stuff. It really is. And I can't wait to see the other episodes. I listened to an interview the other day with the director, Jason Ayer, I believe his name. I was mispronouncing it last week. Where he said that in episode six, you're going to see a lot of the Jordan gambling stuff and all of the... I don't know if they're getting to the conspiracy theories about his dad. Jordan's dad, that is, when he was murdered. But when you watch last night and they concluded with them winning the first final against the Lakers, you figure the first hour next week will focus in on the 92 season when they beat Portland and then the episode six will be 93 and when they beat Phoenix. And I'm sure a lot of the Nick-Bull rivalry will come up. Of course, the gambling that Jordan took place in Atlantic City between games one and two. Uh, This is stuff that I live, but I just can't get enough of. And they go in depth on it. And everything that gets chronicled that the 72 and 10 season is still forthcoming. Obviously, Jordan playing baseball, the time off, losing to Orlando, then beating Orlando the following year. Beating Seattle in that 72 and 10 year where Seattle was 64 and 18. Now, they weren't a great team, but they won a ton of games that year. And then, of course, highlighted by the flu game, the game-winning shot in game one against Utah in 97. There's just so much. And I can't state enough how much I've enjoyed this. Makes you wonder if they're going to do many more of these things. And now that I think about it, been reported in the last couple of days that Kobe Bryant documented his final season in 2015-2016 with a video camera crew. And who knows what's going to happen with that. It's unclear as to when that's going to be edited or even aired but it's just something that's been put out there and I know a lot of people are going to wait to see when that's going to be released but I'm sure that's not going to be for a few years down the road but just to throw that in there as well let's put to rest here the Jordan greatest of all time especially when it comes to the discussion with LeBron James 
or even Kobe Bryant for that matter. And Kobe, we all know he's a Jordan light. People who are, let's say, 35 and younger who think Kobe's just as good as Jordan, if not better, because he scored more points than Jordan. Or, wow, he had one less NBA title, but he had the ferocity and the will and everything. Well, where do you think he got it from, number one? And number two, Kobe wilted in big spots throughout his career. I won't even go back to the Air Bulls in Utah. He was 18 years old. All right, we get that. But what happened in the Celtics series in 2008, especially in an elimination game, game six in Boston, and I get that he was going into a hornet's nest, but he walked out of there a 39-point loser in a game six. All those years there, after Shaq and before the 2008 season when he made it back to a final how he played on those teams, and right, he put up great numbers and he was still a great player, but his teams did nothing. And then that final season where the team won 17 games, and I get that there was a bad team. Those glory years of 2008 to 2010 were long gone where they made three straight finals, but Jordan never had moments like that. In fact, it was surprising to see Jordan in the series against Cleveland, 89, where he made the shot over Elo in game four, where he missed those free throws in regulation and they lost in overtime. So you looked at that like, whoa, Jordan was human. But the thing is, that was before he won his titles. Because pretty much from 91 on, he was infallible. But to talk about the whole LeBron-Jordan debate, it's senseless because they are two different players. And the only reason why Jordan is the greatest of all time, and as I've said in the past, he's the greatest I've ever seen, And for those who've been around longer than I have, they could argue that maybe Oscar Robertson, obviously Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which I did get to see most of his career. Now more back nine than front nine, of course. Wilt, Russell, we get all the all-time greats. But the reason why Jordan, to me, is the greatest, forget about the six for six in NBA Finals, six MVP trophies. We know all the accolades but and the will. We get all that. But as I said earlier, he played in two game sevens. One was early in his career, one was late. And the one that was late was in that final season of 97-98. He never wilted in a big spot. And not only that, he always came through in the clutch. He never came up small. Now, I'm sure we may see a moment or two here over the course of the next six episodes that maybe he did fall short. But think about it. He already won his first title and pretty much... After that, now of course they're going to look at the one year when he came back after baseball where they lost to Orlando. And not to be a Jordan apologist by any stretch, but the guy did take 18 months off from playing basketball. And he wasn't at full Jordan peak powers. And then we saw what happened the next year when they went 72-10 and and then they played Orlando in a conference final and just obliterated him. With Shaq and Penny. And that was actually Shaq's last year in Orlando. So... To me, there is no debate where Jordan has never wilted in a big spot and we've seen LeBron wilt in many spots. And it's not to knock LeBron. I love LeBron as a player. To me, he belongs on the NBA Mount Rushmore and I've said that a zillion times. You can go back to one of the old podcasts that I had, I believe in two years ago, May, after he beat the Celtics in a game seven, I said he belongs up there. Sorry. But even then, he is still not Michael Jordan. So yes, again, people, I can't recommend it enough. If you haven't watched it, go back and watch it or whenever it's going to air. Hopefully you guys have DVR'd it. And if you haven't gotten a chance to see it yet, because, and why not? This, this is the time to watch it. There's nothing else going on. You've been at home. So even if you haven't DVR'd it or start doing so, because you're missing out on great content. And the last night's two episodes were just as good as the first two. I thought the first two were a little bit more revealing as far as stories that I didn't know about or hear of. Obviously, a lot of it was talked about Dennis Rodman last night and how he grew up and he was just an introvert and then became an extrovert and almost killing himself that that I knew about. That wasn't anything that uh, they weren't breaking any news there. But just seeing the hatred between the Pistons and the Bulls, which in this day and age, you don't see. And even Isaiah Thomas makes a mention of that. Everything is love you, man, and pounds and bear hugs and all that. Back then, there was no such thing as that. It was pure hatred, and that's the way sports should be, as far as the sports hatred is concerned. Knowing that there's still, to this day, no love lost between those two teams, uh, that's, that's all you need to know. And to me, that's the beauty of sports. 
You know, and I think back, even real quick, the Islanders in the 80s when they were winning all those Stanley Cups, the goalie, Billy Smith, he would skate off the ice after the Islanders winning a series. He would never shake hands. And a lot of people look at him as, oh, he's the son of a bitch, and why is he doing that? But that was just his MO. He's like, hey, we beat you guys. We don't need to shake hands with you. When you have that type of, whether it's arrogance, bravado, whatever it is, but if you back it up and you feel like that's what you're going to do, is it the right thing? I guess in this day and age, everything is PC, so I guess it has to be just uh, to show respect to your opponent. But back then, that wasn't the case, man. And I wish there was some of that in the games today, in, in all the leagues, not even just basketball. So definitely check that out, people. You're certainly missing out on a treasure. And uh, that's what I got there for the NBA. All right, real quick, let me turn my attention to the baseball. And I know a lot of... Met fans right now are probably wondering, maybe even worrying, that why in the hell would Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez pursue an interest in buying the Mets? Two things about this, people. One good and one, I'm not going to say bad, but not as bad as you think. I'll start with that. When I say they're not as bad as you think, is because even if they're going to put some money in the pot, so to speak, they still need a billionaire. That's right. Not millionaire, a billionaire to back up the truck to be able to take over, hopefully, the Wilpons, Soul Cats, etc., and get them out of here so we could bring in who that new ownership will be. Now, even with every money that Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez has, it's still not going to be enough to buy this team. As we all know, these teams are worth a fortune. And not only that, but with the network on top of it, and if they're smart, they will also try to get the network as well. Chances are the worth of that team will probably be estimated somewhere between 4 to $5 billion. Now, again, that's the team and the network because that means you have all the rights, you have everything. So if you're A-Rod and J-Lo, you're not going in this thinking that, oh, well, hey, we're going to walk out of here as the sole owners of this team. No, 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 no. That means that you have stake in the team, but you need a guy that has the big bucks. All you got to do is just look down in Miami with Derek Jeter and I believe Bruce Sherman. Bruce Sherman is the billionaire. He's the guy that has the funds. Not to say that Jeter was uh, on skid row by any stretch, but at the same time, Jeter, which has been reported that he's put $25 million of his own money into the Marlins, but he's not the focus of that team. He's not the main guy. He's the main guy as far as being the CEO, yeah, but as far as signing the checks for the players, the personnel, scouts, etc., that's Mr. Sherman. So even if A-Rod and J-Lo throw their hat in the ring, they need a Mr. Sherman to be on board to buy this team. So that's what I mean. It's not as bad as you think. So before people start getting all crazy, thinking that, oh, A-Rod's a Yankee, steroid head, blah, 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 J-Lo, what does he know about baseball? They're not going to be able to get the Mets. Well, of course, they're not going to be able to buy the Mets, but they're going to need people involved. So before you think that they're going to be the sole owners of this team, that is not going to be the case. But now the good thing is, if they somehow get that billionaire, whomever that may be, to go along with the likes of Rodriguez and Lopez, guess what? That means the Wilpons will be gone. No Wilpons, no coupons, no mistrust. No aggravation, no wondering, nothing. All that will be out the window. So I don't care if Mickey Mouse is going to be the owner of the Mets. Bring him in. I'm sure he'll do a little bit better than what Fred and Jeff have done over the last 20 some odd years. Don't you think? Get them all out of here. Bring in whomever. I don't care. Kermit the Frog, Miss Piggy, you name it. If they can go ahead and sign their names on the dotted line to bring in free agents or to do the right thing for this organization to put a winning product out there year in and year out just like the other team across the river does in the South Bronx then I'm all for it so that's why the Mets fans should rejoice a little bit thinking that if we get it A-Rod is not a fan favorite for a lot of people out there whether you like baseball love it Met fan not a Met fan etc and J-Lo same deal but hey if they're going to come in and save the day and bring in another person to go ahead and buy this team? Oh my God, please. Where is this guy? Let, let's get it all together. Let's sign on the dotted line and get the Wilpons out. 
Case closed. As far as the Red Sox are concerned, am I surprised that the punishment wasn't as big as it should have been? Not really. All they get is stripped of a second round pick. Cora, who's already suspended. But to me, why is it that they have to use one of their staff, I guess one of the video equipment guys, as they suspended him without pay to the end of this year? Why would they even think about doing that? I mean, to me, that's just useless. It's like the Flategate when they suspended those ball boys for being a part of the whole Deflategate theme. And as we all saw what happened, Tom Brady did get four games suspended the following year. To get that guy to be the poster child for the Red Sox as far as this 2018 sign-stealing scandal is concerned, right, does he get a slap on the wrist? We get that. But it's almost as if he is the one that takes the bullet for the rest of the organization. I understand they have to take him out the task, but geez, to kind of make him out to be the martyr for all this? It just didn't sit right with me. And Ron Renneke is now your full-time manager. So even if there were thoughts about Cora coming back next year, that's not going to be the case unless Renneke just has a god-awful year. And it'll be a short year at that. So, But I wasn't too surprised. We all know that the Astros were the main culprits of this whole thing. And even though the Red Sox with Cora and with his presence and everything that happened in 2017 being at the forefront of this, uh, I'm not surprised that they didn't get a harsher penalty or a penalty close to what the Astros have. And now we can move on and just hopefully baseball will follow suit with the NBA and NHL to get their season started and away we go. All right, now to my hero in zero of the week. My hero of the week is none other than the venerable Vin Scully. He had suffered a fall in his home last week in the Los Angeles area. Didn't think to be serious, but when you're 92 years old, and one of the things that people tend to forget as you get older, there are two things that you lose as you continue to live on, as hopefully as long as you live, is not only your muscles, but also your balance. And I don't know where this fall took place. I don't know where it was reported, whether it was outside, his backyard, steps, whatever. But just knowing that he's okay, and you hear a lot of these falls with People who are up there in age, and sometimes those falls are fatal. But thankfully for one Vince Scully, that's not the case, that he's doing fine. We all, I don't even have to get into Scully's history, as we all know, retired from the Dodger broadcast booth after being there for 67 years. But I'm just glad that he's okay, that one of the treasures of baseball is still around, even though he's been long retired. But Vince Scully, you're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is whomever is putting together this Tom Brady Peyton Manning, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson charity golf event. I guess it's going to be Memorial Day weekend. All I got to ask is, who in the hell is going to watch that thing? Remember, Tiger and Phil did the same deal over Thanksgiving weekend, I believe, in 2018. And it was pay-per-view and we get it was going to go to charity, etc. We get all that. But I don't think anybody I know didn't watch that. And who's going to watch that now, even when there's no sports? When the PGA... And their calendar is going to open up the second week of June when you can watch a legit live event. If you're going to plunk down whatever the pay-per-view is going to be for this thing, you got to be off your rocker. But for them to even organize this thing, you want to see Tom Brady hitting balls into the water or Peyton Manning slicing balls into the trees. I got better things to do with my time than to watch that. So to me, whomever organized that, I'm not knocking Brady, Manning, Tiger, Phil, but whomever is orchestrating all this, and even if they are orchestrating it, then shame on them. Unless they're putting forth their money and the event's free on TV. And even then I still wouldn't watch it. But the bottom line is, they are my zeros of the week or whomever put that thing together. So that will do it, people. As always, I greatly appreciate you taking the time out to listen to what it is I have to say, to download this on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary. goes without saying how much I appreciate your support and the love. Because as you know... I do this from my heart. This is one of my passions. If anybody who knows me personally, sports has been my life since I came out of the womb. And all I want to do is put forth an entertaining and very informative podcast each and every week and hopefully twice a week where I get a guest on. But in order for me to do that, this is where I need your help. Just go ahead and subscribe, rate, 
review, do all that. It takes seconds to do on your device, whether it's your phone, tablet, computer, whatever it may be. Because in doing so, all that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others out there. And in turn, is going to generate interest for those who aren't familiar with myself. So I could possibly get on, whether it's the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, sports writer, blogger, whatever it may be. Because all I want to do is have them share their stories with me so I could share that with you. Not only on a weekly, but bi-weekly basis. So please people, go ahead and do that. I would be greatly appreciative of that. Subscribe, rate, and review on wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on any of my social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram at JReels or the JReels Podcast. On Twitter, JReels1, just a number. The JReels Podcast on my Facebook fan page and the JReels Podcast at gmail.com to send me any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be. I'm open to it, people. I will respond. I'll certainly follow up on whatever it is that's on your mind. Because as I said just a second ago, I love to talk about everything that's happening in the world of sports, whether it's on the diamond, on the ice, on the gridiron, on the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.